Welcome to this production from College Place United Methodist Church. To find out more about our church, please visit our website at www.collegeplaceumc.org. And now, here's our sermon from Reverend Tab Miller. Amen. Thank you, David. I was, I was told by several people that this would be a special song, and I knew it would be, but I didn't realize how appropriate it would be for today's message. I think y'all will understand once we get into it how sometimes God orchestrates things like this um, in powerful ways. This morning I'm going to be taking a lot of time to review what we've been covering over the summer. We've actually covered a lot of ground. I want us to all be on the same page together and to think about what we've already considered because what we're walking into is a very challenging, heart-wrenching text. It's the story of David's loss of his rebellious son, Absalom. And if we go into this cold without warming up, it can be fairly devastating. But if we can see where we've been, we can see where God is going in all of this. So for the last several weeks, we have been back and forth to the book of 2 Samuel. And it is in this book and in the lineup of the salvific promises God gives to us where we get this final covenant with God, this promise of salvation to come in Jesus Christ. This is the precursor covenant. It comes to us in 2 Samuel. We sometimes call this the Davidic covenant. It is building up to what we would call the new covenant, the covenant of Jesus, where there's this final ruler is promised to David, a final ruler who will come and set the world right. So when it comes to understanding Jesus' role in the New Testament, this Old Testament promise in 2 Samuel cannot be understated. The promise that Messiah would come. When we hear the term new covenant, sometimes we're tempted to think that this is a replacement of the old. The old is done away and the new comes in to replace it. Jesus reminds us, however, that he does not come to do away with the covenant promises, but to fulfill them. In fact, it is this covenant in this book of 2 Samuel, the covenant that promises David's dynasty forever, that it will help the Old Testament people to grasp the idea of Messiah in the first place. It will be the covenant that sustains them in their exile after David's kingdom falls apart. It's the covenant that carries them forward all the way to Jesus Christ. And this covenant helps us to understand from an Old Testament perspective the determination of Jesus to defeat sin and yet his determination to have compassion for those of us who give sin its power. The compassion for the sinner. As a matter of fact, we'll see in today's story, in David's own life, how David has to learn to balance in his mind both the mercy of God and, God and God's being against sin and setting the world to justice. As we discussed the promise to David that David receives, that his lineage will last forever, that there will be a king to set the world right, we have called this over the last few weeks the nevertheless covenant. 
Because before this time, Israel had learned explicitly from God that God demanded covenant loyalty. Much like in marriage, when we enter into relationship, it demands above all else fidelity. God asks in the Mosaic covenant made at Mount Sinai that they obey. And he says, if you obey Israel, then I will be your God. We know that by the time we get to David, Israel has learned that it is inca- they are incapable, like all the rest of humanity, to not transgress that if. The if gets transgressed over and over and over again. And then we get what has been implicit the whole time coming to light. God's nevertheless. He does not nullify the covenant with Israel because of their sins. Instead, God changes the conditions It's no longer if you obey Israel. It is Israel you have not obeyed. Nevertheless, I will rule and reign as your God. And through you and through my people, you will be my people. And all of this mystery is going to be solved. How God can live through a rebellious people is going to be solved in this Messiah. But then we discussed how this nevertheless can come into our heads and confuse us a little bit. God's just going to allow things. He's going to make it happen. It's going to happen no matter what. So we think, well, what does consequences matter anymore? There are no consequences. That's not true. This was Nathan's challenge to David when he sinned against Bathsheba in abuse of her and he murdered Uriah. The nevertheless does not mean that God has come to terms with sin. He doesn't say, well, I guess for the rest of eternity, I will settle for having sinful children. Instead, his nevertheless is an offer of mercy for us to have the time to come to grips with who we are, to come to the end of ourselves. It's not just so that God can cover us like spiritual Febreze, that Jesus just comes in to make us smell good, even though deep down we are rotten to the core. Jesus has come to change us day by day. The nevertheless is mercy for time to become broken to the point to come to the end of ourselves so that we go to Jesus in full abandon and allow him to change us. Martin Luther, who was a great theologian and a reformer, sometimes got things wrong. He called us Christians dunghills covered in snow. You're just dung hills covered in snow. Jesus is the snow. I guess you know what you are. Does that sound like a worthy description, though, of what Jesus has come to do? Perhaps we can look at ourselves sometimes and say, I feel nothing but like a pile of dung. And, you know, we might not use that language, but you know what I mean. We can say that of ourselves, but dare we say that about what Jesus has come to do? Is he the litter of the cat litter box of the world? Is that all he is, is just cat litter? May it never be so. Martin Luther was wrong on this point. God's mercy is not a blank check for us, but an opportunity for all prodigals to come back to God after seeing the mercilessness of the world to fall down humbly before a merciful God. And as we'll see in today's text, this mercy... To allow us to stumble leads to a messy world. 
I want to stress that. The nevertheless, the mercy that God extends to you sounds really good for us, but it's not all sunshine and rainbows. God is giving us a chance. Oh, thank you, Lord. But it allows then for a messy, messy world. That God does not come in and step into our world and judge us every time we sin and just eradicate the sinner and, uh, and not allow sin to progress makes the world both an awesome place to be because we get to, we get to live it out and an awful place to live. Sometimes we actually lash out at God because of this. Think about it. If God's mercy allows us to continue to stumble then there is going to be a messy world, without which there would be no human history. There would be no message this morning. So this brings us to the other side of the coin. God is merciful. We've been looking at the nevertheless as a mercy of God, allowing us time to get it right. But on the other side of the coin, we recoil when we see it. And we even lash out at God sometimes. Because God has allowed us to stay here, our sin continues, and we live in an awful reality of murder, of sexual abuses, of crimes against innocence, against political scandals. We live in a world of poverty. I could continue. I could go on. We live in a world of racism. We live in a world of hate. And we look at it, and sometimes we say, God, why? We know why. We like that for ourselves, but we sometimes don't like it when others get to live in that same reality. So this morning, we're going to be asking the question, how do we live in the tension of the nevertheless? How do I live in a world in which I know my sins contribute to an awful reality? How do I respond to that? So here's where we are this morning. Here's, here's where we are in the story that we've been reading. There's been a promise given to David that his dynasty would last forever, and he's taken that for granted. Now that he's guaranteed success, he sins against God by taking advantage of Bathsheba, murdering her husband Uriah, and sin has created tension in both his nation, he's the king, and in his own family. And all this sin kind of comes to roost in this son of his, Absalom, a son he cherished, a son he idolized for his strength, his charisma, his handsome nature, a son despite all his father's coddling, and perhaps because of his coddling, becomes a rebel who has aspirations of taking his father's crown at the cost of his father's life. David has allowed sin to carry on in his household, and he does not address it, and now he's going to be counting the cost. So let's read together from 2 Samuel chapter 18. We'll be reading verses 5 through 9, verse 15, and then verses 31 through 33. The king commanded Joab... Abishai and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, Israel, there Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than even the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and his mule went under the thick branches of a large oak. Absalom's hair got caught in the tree, 
And he was left hanging in midair between heaven and earth while the mule he was riding kept on going. And ten of Jacob's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. The Cushite arrived and said, My lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all those who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? And the Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he wept, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Absalom, my son, my son. This is God's word, and as difficult as it is sometimes to swallow, we believe it. This is one of the more famous passages in all of Scripture when it comes to storytelling and literature. It has all the great intrigue of a good drama. And it plays out on both a national scale and a family scale. It, it covers all the bases. It's inspired countless works from William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom uh, to storyboards of video games. It is the point of focus for many a famous painting and also the point of focus for obscure movies that have hit the screen from time to time. The story of David and Absalom is told again and again because it is so gripping. I mean, who of us is not moved by a story of what should have been? You know how that feels. Who of us is not moved of a story of a father who hopes against hope that his wayward son would change? Who's not moved by a story of a father who has to go end his son's rebellion, hoping that it won't end in the inevitable death that is coming, that he knows is really coming? Who is not moved of a story of a child outliving their parent, or a parent outliving their child, I should say. I think this story, above many other stories in the Scripture, is given to us so that we might learn to live in the complexity of a life under the terms of a covenant of nevertheless. Let's for a moment try to place ourselves in the emotion of the story so that we can feel what the story is laboring to have us feel. David's son Absalom is putting the whole kingdom of, of God, the whole nation of Israel, in danger. As a matter of fact, he is going after their leader, his own father, and the threat that is there is there because this charismatic Absalom is funneling away, siphoning off the, the loyalty of the citizenry of Israel from his father. And now he's threatening the throne of Israel through the defeat of David and he's willing to take his own father's life. Now, so far in the story, up to this point, David is acting as a military leader. He's thinking as a military leader. He's kind of distanced himself in his mind from the fact that he's fighting against his son. But as we get near the end of the story, and the king's men have a, a viable plan to defeat Absalom and his men, David's resolve begins to dim. He knows he's outwitted his son. He's picked the rough terrain of this forest he knows his men who have been trained are better adept at fighting in this environment than Absalom's men. He knows his success is near, so it's not the impending battle that is on the horizon that is the reason for David being at the end of himself. He is a man who leads 
thousands, and he will be victorious. But he's also a father of one son that he will fail. And this is eating his soul alive. David's greatest failing is not that he did not love the boy. He loved him more than possible. We parents know what that feels like. He thought the boy hung the moon. His biggest fault is that he allowed this to cloud his judgment of his son, to allow injustices to continue on in his home. He allowed sin even after being rebuked. He allowed his sins and the sins of his family to go unquestioned. And this puts a whole nation in peril because it corrupts his son. We have to learn something from David in, in this. In our own society, we often are a people of reaction and we're not proactive. We recoil at every national tragedy. We grieve at loss because of our societal issues. When violence visits us, we talk about how senseless it is, and it is senseless. And yet often we don't ask, just like David never asked until it was too late, how do we become part of a solution? And furthermore, probably more important to this story, where have I been a contributor to the problem of sin, and how can I be changed in the world? How can I live for Jesus? We read of everyday issues of poverty, of lack of educational opportunity, of domestic violence, of drug abuse. I could continue on again. And oftentimes we're not willing to look introspectively. We just shake our head at the world. Just as David refused to look at his own peril. The peril of his nation that was coming because of his sins. We sometimes only want to be reactive and not proactive. The lesson we see from David is that we should take ownership in our place in this drama. We should work for peace in the world, not just because we're Christians, but because we're also sinners that should work against our own contributions to the degradation of our reality under the power of Jesus Christ. That's the only way we're going to accomplish it. But he did what many humans would do. Instead, he simply refuses to repent in his sin and he just feels sorry for himself. This leads us to our next consideration. In light of sin and what happens because of sin, oftentimes we're just left feeling sorry for ourselves. But where should our grief lead us? I'm not saying we shouldn't grieve over loss. Feel the tension now in the story. David says to his men, Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. He doesn't seem to be saying, just do me a personal favor. For my sake, would you not hurt my son? David is truly saying to his men, for the sake of my own mental and emotional good, don't kill my son. He's primarily saying, not I'm grieving already for my son, but I am a father in distress because I know my wayward son is in danger. And the author of the text does this remarkable job of helping us as a reader Feel this tension that we know oh so well. Disappointment and sorrow of an ongoing rebellion that we do not address. He's thinking about what could have been. And he is helpless now because he never acted to prevent this. He is helpless. He's so helpless that his military leaders don't allow him to go into the fight. They advise him to stay back because if David falls, all is lost. So he has to send his men out and wait 
to hear whether or not his son will be captured alive. And David stands at the gate, the scripture tells us. And where we pick up, he's standing outside the gate as these men of thousands and hundreds are passing by. And he's telling all the commanders, please do not kill my son. And all the soldiers that are passing by their king see him in this dejected state. Don't harm Absalom. If that doesn't hit you, I don't know what will. And so then the king sits and waits for the battle to play out. And David is grieved. He's grieving for himself and his desires that he had for Absalom that are never going to be because of both Absalom's sins and to a large degree his own. So the messenger arrives to David and says, I have great news, my Lord. And David's heart leaps in his chest, thinking perhaps all has gone to plan. The army has been defeated, and yet my son has been captured and is not dead. But that's not the message. David, your son has been cut down. He is dead. He's dead like the rest of his men. Now, the weight of the nation that should be lifted from his shoulders because now peace and security can return makes no appearance in David's own mind. Only the grief of a, of a father. So David is languishing in this moment over all that he has done wrong. And if you notice, as we read along with this text this morning, God actually doesn't appear anywhere in the whole story except one mention I have great news. The Lord has given us victory, which is just a way of saying, hey, we won. And I think this is a reflection of how David must feel in this moment. God seems very, very far away from David. And this is where the abuse of the mercy of God really sinks in. We can contribute to the degradation of sin and the world around us by being flippant about our own sin. We can be flippant about our sins, flippant about the world around us, their sins. We can just say, well, it's not my problem. But when they finally have, have their repercussions, many of us would act surprised. And this scripture is telling us to be more proactive than reactive. We should fight for justice in our homes. We should live justly before our children so that they may live justly because of our example in Jesus Christ. We should act for justice in the world and be a light to the world so they might see what it looks like. We should help those who cannot help themselves. We should lift up those who suffer. We should fight back against sin. But this does bring us to my final consideration for us this morning. For some of us, sin and our human frailty has come. It is too late. The damage is done. And we, like David, have waited too long. We're suffering and there's nothing we can do to put the pieces back together. But David's story reminds us that while we can never put back the pieces of our brokenness and the broken stories in our lives, God is faithful. That's what God says. David, you can fail, and nevertheless, I am faithful, and I will have my will be done on earth. So what do we do when we recognize the messy world of the nevertheless? We have to look beyond David's immediate hopelessness in the story 
to see what is coming around the corner. We do what David could not in this moment. We look back to the other side of the coin. We've been looking at the ugly side. That because God says nevertheless, we live in a realm of sin and pain and suffering. But when we flip it back over, we're reminded that God will win. I don't pretend to understand how God's righteous mercy and justice interplays with all the loss we experience in this world. I don't know how to tell you how he's going to put it back together and how he will strengthen you and bring you back up. But I do know that in this great mystery, God says that in the end, because of what Jesus has done, every tear will be wiped away and you will have no more sorrow. So as the band comes back up, I want to point out this. This, this event in David's life, this loss of his son and this grief is a foreshadowing. David's despair is a signal to us. He says, Absalom, Absalom, if only it could have been me who died, I would have died for you over and over again. This is actually probably the most human point in all of this story, but it's also the most godly point. For as damaged and as sinful as David has been, he still is a man after God's own heart, and here he is reflecting something of the personality of God who says over us, Oh, my rebellious children, if only I could die for you. As Frederick Buchner says, not even a king can do that. This is David's realization this day. As much power as he has, he cannot die for his son. He cannot take on his son's sin. He cannot withdraw what he has done. His son has to die. But Buchner also reminds us that death can be defeated. That sin will be defeated, but it takes a God. And this is what we see take place in the coming of Jesus Christ for us. So this day, set your mind on the God who gave you Jesus Christ, who is going to take all of your sorrow, who is going to take all the damage of the sin that you hate that has taken something from you in your life. Set your mind on this God. We cannot imagine. We cannot imagine how God's going to make all things new. How he's going to work all of the things that have damaged us for our good. But that is the promise of scripture. This is what God has been talking about all the time. The God who promised David that while we are sinners, nevertheless in the end, his will will be done. We just have to remember that it takes a God. Do you have a God strong enough to put the pieces of your sorrow back together? That is my prayer for you this morning this altar will be open for you this has been a production of college place united methodist church may god bless you richly upon hearing this message